Science. Science Po. Hello everybody and welcome back to Science Po Research Podcast on most important challenges of our times. I'm Sergey Gurif, uh, provost of Science Po. And uh, today, as in previous episodes, we discuss the research by Science Po faculty on the most pressing issues of our times, in this case, on environmental transformation. Today with me, I have a scholar of environmental inequalities, uh, Lukas Ansel, who is uh, uh, recently joined uh, Science Po as Associate Professor of Economics, who works at the Center for uh, Research on Social Inequalities. And uh, Lukas is a well-known scholar of income and wealth inequality, but also of environmental inequalities. Luca is a co-director of World Inequality Lab and also a research director of a recently launched uh, climate inequality report. That's the first climate inequality report in 2023. Luca, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, Luca, uh, if, if you want to summarize the most uh, surprising findings from climate inequality report, what would you say? Maybe to say that um, there's a, a triple uh, climate and inequality crisis. And we try to summarize this crisis in, in a single graph, which I invite everybody to go and check in this report. And the idea is that there's an inequality in terms of um, um, pollution. So the top 10% world emitters, which correspond more or less, but we can get into these details later, to the top 10% of the world uh, income population. It's not exactly the same. Uh, they contribute to about half of the you know, pollution problem in terms of CO2 emissions. Uh, this same part of the world population, in fact, faces very little relative income losses as compared to the losses that are faced, uh, that will be absorbed, and that are already absorbed by the bottom half of the world population, which itself contributes very little to the problem. So that's the, you know, this first double asymmetric inequality. And then the third inequality is the inequality in terms of capacity to adapt and capacity to finance the transition. And this really connects with another now relatively well-known form of inequality, which is the inequality of capital ownership at the global level, but also within countries. And here, what we find is that the top 10% of the world population owns more or less three quarters of what there is to own in the world. Whereas the bottom half of the world population, so more than 3.6 uh, uh, or 3.7 billion individual in this world, um, they actually uh, own less than 3% of everything there is to own. So basically, those who pollute more are impacted less, have much more capacity to act, and that's exactly the reverse for those who pollute less. And so this is the challenge that we're confronted with when we think about uh, climate policies today. Uh, this is this is really shocking, and this is very important. We've talked a lot about income and wealth inequality, but when we connect to inequality in contributions, in the pollutions, but also ability to uh, mitigate uh, and adapt uh, this is, of course, uh, very shocking. Before going into these um, uh, policy questions, can you say a few words about the methodology of how you measure that? We know that uh, uh, researchers on global income distributions look at country-level income distributions and try to add them up together 
uh, wealth uh, data, as, as, as you mentioned, are also shocking, but probably is even more questionable. How do we, how do we actually measure the inequality in terms of pollutions? So first things first, it's complicated. Um, we basically have uh, statistical systems which have not been designed to measure that. So uh, that's a big disclaimer for all the data that we discuss in this report and that I'm going to be discussing here. Uh, these numbers are perfectible. And I hope that they will very much be improved in the, in the years to come. That being said, we think that the number we produce or that we summarize in this report, which basically also uh, is a sum of you know, uh, dozens and dozens of research papers from colleagues all over the world, we think that they are the best available today. And so um, why is it complicated? Well, because uh, statistical systems have not been designed to measure individual contributions to pollution. They've been designed, and still pretty lately, only, it's only pretty lately that we have so-called a system of environmental accounts as part of the United Nations system of how we measure the economy and society. It's, you know, this really picked up uh, only in the past 15, 20 years, um, and, and we're still, you know, have to make a lot of progresses at the country level to measure this. Now, as researcher of inequality, we try to bring in this new dimension. So to connect this country-level information on what sector is polluting, let's say, you know, the transport sector, the industry sector, within the industrial sector, which, uh, you know, is it the food sector, is it the construction sector, and so forth and so on. We try to connect this with uh, data on individual pollution. So how we do this, again, it's, um, it's a complicated story. There are different ways to do it. One way would be to say, let's look at the inequality um, of pollution between consumers. So you go to the supermarket, you take your car, you're going to emit some carbon, but you, there you also are going to buy some stuff. And in this stuff, there's pollution that is embedded in this stuff. And so we try to, to measure that, to include that in our numbers. And that's been... Um, the, you know, a big approach that, that's been developed over the past 15 years. Now, what we try to include as well in this report is a complementary representation of carbon inequality, which I think is very important. And it's tried to say, trying to say that it's not just about the consumers who take their car, who go to the supermarket to buy stuff. It's also about those who actually are going to own the supermarket, and those who are going to own, you know, the car manufacturing company. We need, I think, more and more to think in terms of capital inequality and contribution to pollution. And so we also try to provide, you know, uh, first measures to account for this responsibility of individuals, not just as consumers, but also as investors. And so, you know, it's a complicated story, but I think we're making good progresses in this report. Yes, this is fascinating because with income, it's uh, hard, but it's much easier because you can survey people, you can uh, use administrative data on wealth. It's even harder, but again, you can uh, look, at, uh, uh, look at administrative data and sometimes you can also survey people on individual contributions to pollution. Indeed, you have to do a lot of uh, assumptions and connect those dots between consumption, production, employment, uh, transportation, uh, buildings, and so on. Uh, and that uh, leads to my next question. When we usually talk about uh, global problems like uh, climate change, uh, we always ask a question, 
is the main inequality between countries or within countries. Mm -hmm. In the end of the day, we don't have a global government, mm -hmm. whatever we wish for. Uh, the world is run by countries, by uh, nation states. And so we want to understand uh, where the action can be taken at the level of countries or we need to negotiate between countries. So when we think about global environmental inequality, inequalities, the inequalities you mentioned, uh, what, is, what is the main uh, quantitative uh, uh, instrument there? Do we need to act within countries or between countries? So uh, the answer is both indeed. Um, that being said, what we um, document is a shift over the past 30 years. A big shift in um, the relative weight of within versus between climate inequality. And here by climate inequality, I mean uh, the inequality of emissions, carbon emissions. And so what we find is that um, when the first conferences of parties of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change were uh, set up in the early 1990s, the world was characterized by uh, more between-country uh, climate inequalities. That is, there were big differences in average pollution levels, again, CO2 emissions, between Chinese Indians and Europeans, Americans. So a lot of between-country differences. And what we show is that there is a progressive shift towards more gaps, more, relatively more gaps, within countries, so within India, within China, within Europe, within the US, uh, than the between-country gaps. And so what we find is this kind of reversal of the between versus within inequality in climate emissions. And the numbers we have is more or less uh, two-thirds of global inequality in carbon emissions in 1990 could be, at the time, could be explained by these between-country gaps. And now it's the reverse. Two-thirds, more or less, can be explained by within-country gaps. When I say that, I do not mean that there are no gaps between countries anymore. In fact, that's quite the contrary. There are big gaps between, you know, average emissions of a North American, about 20 tons of carbon per person per year, and average emissions of, um, you know, an average country in Sub-Saharan Africa, you know, around two tons of carbon per person per year, and sometimes even less. Uh, but what I mean is that even on top of this, there are even larger gaps within countries in the world. This is particularly strong and stark in emerging nations like India, like China, where basically where you have is these dual economies, whereby a part of the population lives and enjoys living standards, and also the energy requirements of these living standards that are similar to Western countries. And another part of the world is, you know, among the poorest people of the population of this planet. This is uh, fascinating because it goes back to the question whether we can combine uh, environmental transition and uh, uh, fighting climate change with fighting global poverty, right? Uh, if you look at those uh, 20, 30 years uh, since... Uh, late 80s, beginning of 90s, we see a great progress in global income distribution, where the rise of global middle class, India and China, especially China, has actually diminished uh, global inequality somewhat. Uh, this is the famous uh, elephant curve of uh, 
Milanović, Branka Milanović, the economist who combined data on global income distribution, uh, that shows that uh, a lot of countries have, uh, that used to be poor and a lot of citizens of the world that used to be poor now become global uh, middle class. And these are exactly the individuals you're talking about who are now consuming more um, uh, and uh, polluting more. And so to what extent this shift where we move from having 40 years ago, having almost half of global distrib- global global uh, population living at $2 per day, now this half of global population is no longer half by more like 10 um, 10% of global population, to what extent this should worry us in terms of emissions, this should worry us about climate change, or you think we can combine uh, rising incomes at the bottom of the income distribution in the world and uh, diminishing diminution pollutions? So two ways to answer that. Mm-hmm. The first one is focusing on the eradication of extreme poverty. So people living with less than $1.9 per day or even $5.5 per day per person in a more extensive uh, um, definition of extreme poverty. And there the studies uh, on the matter actually show that, in fact, eradicating poverty from a carbon point of view should not be uh, the worry that it is often Uh, in rich countries who say, no, but look, it's going to be so complicated to eradicate poverty because that will overshoot carbon budget, whatever is left to uh, stay below 1.5 or 2 degrees temperature increase. Here, the study says that, in fact, that's um, eradicating extreme poverty worldwide is a relatively small contribution to global emissions. And it, it is... Uh, if you think of the, the most, you know, um, uh, extreme poverty definition, that's just a few percentage points increase in global emissions. That's significantly less than all emissions of the top 1% of the global population, which are from 15 to 18% of the world total, depending on how we count them. So just 1% to 2% if we want to eradicate extreme, extreme poverty versus 15 to 18% emissions of the top 1%. Now the key question, and that's the second part of my answer, so it's not extreme poverty. The problem is not extreme poverty. The issue is indeed the middle class, the emerging middle class in India, uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, in Latin America, in China as well. And, and here, yes, we have a big, huge distributional issue, we have a cake, that is, we have about 300 billion tons of emissions left to emit by 2050. And the question is, how much of this is going to be directed at the emerging middle class? And I'm very happy to discuss this uh, further. Yeah, this is, this is the main question, because uh, from your report, it follows that if we look at uh, emissions of the, of the global poor, Either we count the global poor as people who live at two dollars per day, three point two dollars per day, or five and and half dollars per day. Uh, this is a very small part of the global emission. So if we move people who live on two dollars a day to five point five, it's not going actually to increase uh, global emissions. It can be mitigated, uh, can be compensated by a reasonable increase in uh, carbon tax on the very rich. But when we talk about the emergence of global middle class, suddenly we are talking about billions and billions of people who double or triple 
their emissions. And so what would be your policy recommendation regarding this? So eventually in the world, the goal of Chinese government, of Indian government, of any Latin American government is not to stop at the current middle income levels of uh, living standards. Every country wants to reach high income status, wants to reach uh, levels of prosperity and quality of life enjoyed today by Western countries. And that uh, would become much costlier for the planet. So what would you recommend regarding the global middle class? So the, um, the global uh, middle class in the emerging world is indeed the key challenge uh, here. And um, if we had the perfect answer so far, uh, we would say it. And I don't think we have, you know, all the uh, bits of the puzzle so far, but there are some, you know, uh, uh, ways forward that um, are worth pursuing. Um, the, the first point is that if we want to make space for the emerging middle class, we need to accelerate decarbonization, decarbonation in rich countries. As I said before, the top 10% of the world population represents still today 50%, half of all emissions. So that's why we need to really, you know, uh, accelerate this uh, decarbonation, deep decarbonization efforts. The second part is that we have all these abilities to leapfrog in the emerging world. That is to not go through the, you know, energy intensive, oil dependent development path that Western countries have followed over the past uh, 150 years. The problem is that often, if you go to Latin America, for instance, the development patterns that you observe in how cities grow, for instance, in how transportation sectors are developed, are very much uh, a copy of what you see in the worst cases of the most energy-intensive cities in North America. So we really need to uh, be, able, be able to produce a vision of development that is not the North American super uh, in energy-intensive vision. And I think that's what European can contribute to offer uh, a more low-carbon you know, development uh, future, whereby cities are more uh, dense, so you require less energy to, uh, to walk around and to be transport, transport, tra transported in cities. And whereby um, you also don't always you know, go towards a, um, a race for bigger products, always more products, which is what you observe also in North America, you know, with this very uh, big cars, uh, all these big uh, electric uh, appliances at home, etc., this is also a, 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 a development vision uh, challenge. And then there's the big question of how are we going to finance the many, many investments that low-income and middle-income countries need to do in their energy sector, in their transportation sector, in their uh, uh, industrial sectors, to make sure that they align on the best possible you know, low-carbon solutions options. There's a question of intellectual property rights to make sure that everybody benefits from the latest, uh, from the latest uh, low carbon technologies. But there's also a key question of the finance. And here I'm back on the first point at the beginning of this interview. Uh, top 10% of the world population owns three quarters of whatever there is to own. So there's here really a question about how do we make sure in such an unequal world where you need so much capital invested in countries which precisely lack capital today, that these investments can be made. And I think there's a big questions to have collectively together 
in terms of, you know, uh, increasing, enhancing global redistributions. Some will go through market forces. Some private actors will see an interest to invest in green tech sectors in the emerging world. But not everything will seem for these private actors as uh, profitable from a market perspective. So we also need to enhance tr these global transfers from north to south. And the key point here, the key challenge is that so far, rich countries have pledged a certain amount of transfers from north to south, but have not, uh, they did not face up to the pledges that they actually were uh, announcing. And so not only these pledges were not sufficient enough, but we have not even matched them so far. So that's really the key question today for rich countries. Do we really want to make sure that this emerging middle class is low carbon? And if yes, uh, are we putting enough resources on the, on the table to help uh, these emerging countries achieve that goal? Uh, thanks. So indeed, you have both within country redistribution aspects and between country aspects to this uh, climate transition in the world. And uh, the question uh, you mentioned, you mentioned uh, rich countries um, commitments as a researcher uh, who looked at the cost of environmental transition in uh, low and middle income countries. Do you think that, for example, a pledge of 100 billion per year, is that sufficient? You mentioned it's not. What would the number be? What should it be? Uh, what would you recommend? I fully agree that we need to think about between country, government to government uh, contributions, because some of these investments are not uh, uh, market supported. These are infrastructure investments that have to be made by governments or international organizations. What would be the numbers you would have in mind uh, if 100 billion per year is not enough? So by 2030, what uh, the researchers who look at these questions find is that you need about uh, 1,800 to 2,000 billion uh, euros invested in the transition in low and middle income countries. Um, and so uh, out of a total of um, over 4,000 billion euros, so the rest is going to be for rich countries. So additional you know, investments in green sectors. So when you look at these numbers, you really understand that the pledges of 100 billion euros per year, and currently the latest available data shows that we're around 85 billion out of 100. So we're not so far, but we're not at the, you know, we're not at the objective, is a really minimal objective that, will f that would fall more into the realm of, you know, adaptation. But it's not really about the big, massive transformation of uh, the production and the consumption side of the economy. So we basically need to scale up these. If all these transfers were coming from global government donations, they would need to, we would need to scale up by factor 10, so to say, or maybe 20. Again, of course, all, not all of it is going to go through you know, government redistribution at the global level. But clearly, you know, there's quite a bit of space to do it better. And then this again reconnects to some of the very important questions we have today about uh, who is contributing to taxation within countries. Can we ask low-income group, groups and middle-income groups in rich countries to pay more for investments in the global south? Uh, you know, I think the answer would be pretty clear that a lot of people think that they would not. Uh, I mean, they would like to, but they can't really do that. And so again, this connects with, you know, the very interesting debates that 
um, have grown over the past years about who basically has been paying taxes over the past decades, who hasn't, who has, you know, capacity to pay more. And I think, you know, it connects very much with the multinational taxation debates, whereby we have realized collectively that uh, many profits were undertaxed. And actually that we, do, we could do something about it. And that is the good news here. We could be able to reach, uh, you know, um, at least the premise, because it's still a bit complicated, uh, but the premise of a multinational tax deal. And so that is also another option. Um, use this basis to add up some layers of contribution by multinational actors to financing uh, through minimal um, corporate profit taxes, some in green investments in, in the global south. I think it's a, it's a great reminder that we've actually covered a lot of ground in the last 10 years, and uh, most of the debate was uh, driven by OECD, but also member states in what's called base erosion and profit shifting. And uh, this debate was essentially intellectually um, supported by research you and your uh, colleagues in World Inequality Lab have done, in particular Tamar Piketty and uh, Gabriel Zuckman and Emmanuel Saez. A lot of what's happened in the last 10 years is actually due to economists working on this data, showing how much we undertax and how much money the governments collectively lose because of this base uh, um, uh, erosion and profit-shifting practices by global corporations. But private sector, as you mentioned, may also play a positive role and you mentioned that, uh, in principle, investors around the world, pension uh, funds, insurance companies are sitting on lots of money, which earn relatively little return these days. And they could have invested that where the world needs money to be invested, which is low and middle income countries who need money to green their, their economies. The question is how to incentivize this investment. Today, when many of these countries for internal political reasons, actually give energy subsidies. They actually try to support low-income households in low-income countries to be able to uh, survive. They, they subsidize energy consumption. And in that sense, incentives for the private sector is to invest in dirty technology rather than in green technology. What can we change there? How can we create incentives for low-income countries to change the incentives of the private sector and therefore move the trillions uh, to support investment in decarbonization of uh, the development uh, trajectory that you mentioned? So I think the, the first point is exactly what you said. Um, to get our finance and tax systems right, first point is not even a carbon tax. It's stopping uh, fossil fuel subsidies which are, um, you know, a, carb, a, a bonus for the brown industries, for the polluting industries. And so some countries have been able to do that. Um, for instance, Indonesia was a country that was subsidizing fossil fuels a lot for the precise reasons you mentioned, to support um, households when they purchase kerosene and, and gas. And the why is it complicated to remove these fossil fuel subsidies because governments have loved them over the past decades. The industry loved, loved it. The households loved it. And so today we're in this situation where every country has a um, climate objective, but we still have, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of fossil fuel subsidies. 
It's complicated to remove them because when you do so, well, you have you know, vested interests. You have groups of the population who are going to oppose it because they're going to lose. And so some countries have managed to remove them, uh, like in Indonesia, uh, whereby what they did was removal of the fossil fuel subsidy and recycling of the revenues from these reforms to foster social transfers, to foster development in social security, cash transfers to households, education, more educational money for families. And by doing that, they were able to basically face this potential social issue that is associated with the increase in energy prices in brown, in uh, highly carbon uh, uh, content energy prices. So that's the first thing. We need to remove these fossil fuel subsidies. And, you know, we've been talking about this over the past 20 years in international organizations, in research, but we still haven't done it. Why? Because so far, I don't think we're looking uh, directly enough at the social issues, at the inequality issues associated with this removal. Second, we should definitely move on to more carbon pricing. And then it's, you know, similar issues but which are you know, even more exacerbated, basically, when you tax carbon, some people uh, might face difficulties in ba basically uh, making their um, ends meet, basically. And this is precisely what we've seen with the Yellow Vest movement in France in 2017, 2018. And so here the, the basic answer is that if you do not redistribute the revenues from these carbon taxes, if you, if you do not do it at, at a relatively large scale, then it's likely that these policies of carbon prices will fail. And that's a big, you know, kind of result from the literature on the, on the topic over the past 15 years. Unfortunately, some governments, you know, still have not read properly this, this research, but that's, you know, that's also part of the job. It's, it often takes time, basically, to... Um, to push forward research outputs in the policy world. And maybe then the, the third uh, possibility, the third option, I think, is we, we need to have more policies that um, will give incentives but also sticks to bad investments. We still have too many you know, financial products that are also going to be directed at the middle class that offer investments in industries that do not have climate targets, climate objectives, and sometimes actually that have the reverse, that contribute to developing you know, new oil fields in some parts of the world. And there, you know, if you're a middle-class person and you have some wealth to invest because you have a little bit of savings, today, you know, you don't have, you know, standardized information to let you know what's going to be a good investment, what's going to be a bad investment. And you don't have, you know, enough regulations and, you know, standards and sticks. And I think we really need to accelerate uh, this, um, this shift in the finance sector to make sure that investors, they have right incentives through information. And very soon there's also regulation through which, you know, some investments will not be allowed anymore because there's too much carbon uh, that's um, inside uh, the, the product you buy or the saving plan that you, that you have. I'm actually optimistic on, on this side. I think uh, I'm old enough to remember what happened in global accounting practices 20 years ago after Enron and WorldCom scandals. Mm -hmm. Uh, the global financial community has tried to rewrite uh, uh, international accounting rules uh, and eventually arrived at more transparent accounting of, uh, of uh, financial 
products, stock markets. Stock markets became uh, better regulated, not necessarily perfectly well regulated, but we can change that. And today we see the pressure on the companies, and on, on the audit companies as well, uh, to produce uh, standards, ESG standards, where companies can set climate targets at the level of the company, at the level of the sector, at the level of a, uh, activity or a unit. So there, a lot of work is uh, to be done, but uh, there I, I, remain, I remain optimistic. But on, on the issue you uh, mentioned that we need to combine uh, environmental transition with um, uh, redistribution and uh, uh, redistribution and social equality uh, agenda, uh, that uh, is something that we saw here in France with the yellow vest. In the U.S., which is uh, the biggest polluter, um, this debate is not resolved yet. You remember around that time, thousands of American economists actually called mm -hmm. for a uh, policy that you mentioned in, in impose a um, carbon tax and redistribute all the revenues from the carbon tax in per capita way. So uh, the richer households would lose and the poorer households would actually gain from this redistribution. redistribution. But this is not taken seriously by American government so far. Uh, why do you think that is the case and uh, what can we do about this? Look, I, I think it really uh, talks about um, the, um, the economics discipline more generally. This question of um, carbon taxation versus other forms of climate policy. And it is quite clear that over the past 25 years, you know, if you look at research papers on the economics of climate change from the economics discipline, it's largely been, not only, but very largely been about taxing carbon. We need to get the prices right. Um, what we see with the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. of President Biden, which in fact is a climate act, um, and which is uh, set to, according to some uh, projections and analysis, to do two-thirds of the way towards the U.S. Ob climate objective. So it's not a you know, marginal policy here. We're talking about something big with macroeconomic impact in terms of reduction of emissions. There's no carbon taxation there. It's about subsidies for green sectors. So it's really the, the carrot uh, approach. And I think that uh, it makes sense. It makes sense because, you know, sometimes, yes, taxing carbon is complicated, might be the best, the optimal, you know, solution in a perfect world, idealized world of uh, uh, economic papers. But in reality, to move forward, maybe, you know, what uh, President Biden is doing with basically more subsidies for green sectors, working on the regulation side, and basically avoiding this question of carbon taxation because of fears, precisely, of social backlash, industrial backlash, may be the right way to move forward. And maybe, you know, the carbon price can kick in in five years in a little more time. But I think that's a, you know, that's a very interesting approach, which also tells something about how we've thought about this problem from the economics perspective. I think, uh, I think it's a very good point that it is easier to sell carbon, uh, carbon reduction subsidies, green subsidies, rather than carbon taxes. But we, of course, understand that somebody has to pay for this. Well, maybe growth will pay for this. Uh, maybe uh, we will have a non-zero-sum game. But eventually, when government spends money, somebody has to pay for this. If it's inflation, inflation is a regressive tax. So this is uh, not great for uh, social justice. 
It could be other taxes, could be a luxury consumption tax, could be wealth tax, then it will be progressive. But again, we cannot just talk about the need to subsidize uh, green transition with, without thinking who is going to pay for this and whether it will uh, be a progressive or regressive uh, legislation. I think that's precisely spot on. That is the big, you know, billion dollar question here. The question is who pays for these subsidies? And to some extent, it's more explicit uh, when it's done in the Inflation Reduction Act way, whereby uh, the U.S. administration is saying that a big part of these investments, of these subsidies, are going to be financed by new taxes or increased taxes on U.S. households that earn more than $400,000 per year mm -hmm. and on you know uh, new taxes on corporations. So basically, here the deal is really to say that uh, we're going to increase taxes on the very rich precisely to finance these subsidies. It's much more... So basically here we see the articulation of the social and the green side pretty clearly, pretty explicitly. The other option is to go forward with the carbon tax, to use the revenues of the tax to finance green investments, but the carbon tax, as we know, some, on some sectors is regressive in the sense that low-income groups might contribute to a higher share of the tax uh, as a proportion of their income or their total consumption, because in certain sectors of the economy, including transport, they spend more of their incomes on transport than the very rich. As a share of their income. Exactly. As a share of the income. And that's, that's exactly the rationale for poor countries to subsidize uh, energy for low-income households, because for them, uh, fuel and electricity and uh, and uh, transportation is a higher share of their income. Absolutely. And unfortunately, uh, this is a reality we need to operate in. Unfortunately, uh, we are running out of time. I, I, I would like to mention that you're right that economics as a discipline has transitioned itself from carbon tax only to carbon investment as mm -hmm. well, because some of, the, some of the environmental transformation instruments cannot be done in a market-supported way. You need to uh, have government intervention, in particular in infrastructure. Uh, and uh, we see that economics has changed as well. And uh, uh, we see that uh, uh, in Inflation Reduction Act was there, is introduced, and is going to be implemented no, no matter what. Uh, as, we running, uh, as we are running out of time, I would like to ask a question that I uh, uh, raise in the end of the, each podcast. What would be your... Uh, policy priorities is if you were the prime minister of a country or of the world. I've read uh, climate inequality reports, so I know that the first recommendation is to improve climate statistics. Uh, but uh, in terms of policy interventions, we mentioned many policies today. What would be your favorite uh, one, two or three policies that you would like to start with? I would start with the green wealth tax. You know, I think one of the defining characteristics of uh, you know, this period of the, you know, economy we're in is really the undertaxation at the very, very top. In societies that are uh, very unequal, it makes a lot of sense to have wealth taxes because with relatively small tax rates, you can get a lot from it. And uh, so that's what I would do, basically. Um, a wealth tax, a progressive wealth tax um, with revenues that would be directed towards the transition towards the investments that the economy needs. So it would be very difficult to say, no, but if we implement this wealth tax, then it will be, you know, uh, very bad for the economy and so forth and so on, because in fact, we need to do these investments in the green sectors. So that is, you know, what I would start with. 
We need more resources. We need to accelerate investments. It's going to be hard to ask more from low and middle income groups in society to contribute to these investments. So I would do a green uh, wealth tax. Thank you very much, uh, Luca. That's all for today. But uh, please uh, stay tuned. More to come on environmental transformation in our Sciencepo Research Podcast. That was Sergey Guriev. Until next time. Sciencepo. Science